Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Today, we catch up with three reporters to expand upon some of the great reporting that they've done about vacant housing, climate change, remediation, and education. We begin with Justin Fenton from our news partner, The Baltimore Banner. He's been writing about the swarm of foreign investors who are buying some of Baltimore's huge stock of distressed properties and vacant houses in the hope of renovating and renting them. But they are running into a myriad of problems. Justin Fenton joins us from the offices of The Banner on Zoom. Hey, Justin, how you doing? Hey, Tom, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. So let's start with ABC Capital. This is a firm you've been writing about. Uh, they are the subject of some lawsuits. Um, what is their business model? Uh, what are they selling and who are they selling to? Yeah, I mean, first I'd say I, the reason I got onto this because I was really interested in learning more about, about the conditions of a particular neighborhood in West Baltimore called Carrollton Ridge. Uh, it's a very small neighborhood. It's about west of the B&O uh, Railroad Museum. It's about like seven blocks by seven blocks, but it has the highest number of homicides in the city of any neighborhood by far over the past few years. Um, and it's there's some really tragic conditions in that neighborhood, and I and and uh, including many many vacant homes. So I was trying to figure out sort of who owns these, who's behind, uh, you know, who, and wh- why are they like this? Uh, and I kept seeing all these LLCs, uh, these limited liability corporations that had acquired the homes from a company called ABC Capital. So ABC Capital is a company based out of Philadelphia, uh, and they bought many, many homes in Philadelphia uh, for years and then moved into the Baltimore market around uh, 2016, 2017. Their model is to tell uh, investors that they will basically set them up with a home uh, they will purchase the home. They will set up the limited liability corporation from them, and then they will take care of the home. They'll re- they'll renovate it. They'll maintain it. They'll collect the rent, and it's this you know passive uh, income opportunity where it's completely hands off. Uh, that's what they tell people. Um, the the problem is they they really weren't following through in a lot of cases, and so what we found was investors in countries uh, such as Israel, Argentina. Hong Kong, uh, all over, uh, that own properties uh, all over Baltimore in in distressed areas. And the homes are in disrepair, and people are kind of wondering, you know, how they can get out of this, basically, or how how they can get what they really signed up for in in the the first place. Yeah, so these investors think that uh, these properties are being purchased, they're being fixed up, uh, and then it's going to have a steady stream of uh, rental income. Uh, for months on end, years on end, but it's not happening. Who is ABC Capital buying these properties from? We hear uh, when we talk about the distressed properties and and vacant houses and the the, the scope of this problem. There's some fifteen thousand vacant houses alone. When I talk to folks at the housing department, and you've done this as well, you know they say uh, it's not as easy as you think to uh, just you know find uh, have the city own them and then sell it or uh, give it to somebody to renovate it or tear it down. Um, there's all sorts of problems with uh, people, you know, gaining title to these companies. How does ABC Capital seem to get uh, access to so many of these properties? Yeah, I mean, this is a new world for me. I, I've, I've been covering, you know, crime for the most part in my time in Baltimore the past 17 years. So this was new for me. I, I spoke with investors i spoke with some of the, the middlemen who buy the properties and really you know what looks like an area of town that's not desirable that people wouldn't want to invest in some for some reason isn't is in fact a very hot market um there there are people just sort of 
trading, you know, acquiring homes and flipping them for small amounts. And, and it, it's like they're trading cards. You know, there's certain properties I looked at that are currently owned by, you know, somebody out in, in Turkey or, or, you know, China. Uh, and like the home has been transferred, you know, six times over the past 10 years. And someone acquires it for 12000 they sit on it for a few years. They sell it for ten thousand, and somebody else flips it for you know fifteen thousand. And it's like I don't, I don't really understand it. <laughs> like I don't understand what the point of that is. Um, perhaps maybe if you're doing this in high volumes on the margins, you're making a little bit of money. But it, overall, it, it ends up being a lot. Um, but it's it's really staggering. And I, I thought that, you know it's important to bring these things to light because I, I think that a lot of outsiders to the city. Um, people don't understand the dynamics of the city. They look at the condition of these neighborhoods and they blame city residents. They say, you know, I, I can't believe that they've let their neighborhoods get like that. Um, if you look at any vacant block in the city, it's not owned by people in the city. They're owned by people in, uh, you know, Southern Maryland, Bethesda, uh, Virginia, New York, you know, even more far flung areas. And as I found through this investigation, foreign countries. And I think you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with people in foreign countries who want to buy properties and fix them up and rent them out. I mean, if they have a local property manager who's going to look after the property and take care of it, you know, it's, it's, it's good for these things to, to be renovated and rented out. We have a housing uh, problem in, in the city. I, but I think the challenge here is that, you know, these people are, you know, like 3,000, 5,000 miles away. And when things go wrong, uh, it's extremely difficult to address them. Uh, they were, they bought the properties on the promise that somebody here was going to take care of it and they wouldn't have to do anything. And that, now that that's not happening, these are folks who don't speak English. They don't understand the rules here and they're stuck. And that's a big problem for the city because um, now, now the city has to deal with it. Uh, there was a report that came out uh, earlier this year that said you know, vacant homes cost the city hundreds of millions of dollars, both in lost revenue for people not paying property taxes, and then the cost that the city has to pay to you know, maintain them, to, to seal them up when people break in, to put out fires, you know, and they collapse on people and kill people, things like that. Um, so, you know, again, it's it certainly, you know, the, outside investors is not a new thing. But I think this wrinkle of, of people in, in very far away lands who don't speak English, is a, it really compounds the problem. Justin Fenton is with our news partner, the Baltimore Banner. He's been writing about uh, houses being flipped and supposedly renovated and uh, managed by a company called ABC Capital. He's also written about some other companies and some individual investors. And Justin, you wrote about a guy named Ricardo Ovid. Uh, who people think may be based in Miami. Um, just to give folks a, an idea of the scope of this, he purchased 25 of these properties at a cost of more than $3.3 million. These are these are huge investors. This is not some mom and pop in uh, in Turkey or Hong Kong uh, saying, "Oh, let's buy a house in Baltimore," you know, across from Carroll Park. Let's uh, let's go all in. Um, if, if for an investor to, to be that significant, I mean, $3.3 million, this doesn't sound like a naive person. Um, how is it that uh, a company like ABC Capital uh, appears to have been able to, to swindle this man's money? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that for the most part, while there, while there are investors who are buying dozens of properties, I found that it mostly was sort of one-off, um, which again is, is fascinating to me. You know, there was one uh, client who is like a retired police officer in Venezuela, and he sees some 
something on Facebook that says, you know, if you if you put cash down and buy a home in Baltimore, Maryland, you're, you're going to make guaranteed rental income and you'll make back your investment in 10 years. Uh, and there was a lot of people who just sort of were casually getting into this, which which was pretty fascinating to me because that's that, that you know, I, you think of the the American dream and buying property and it's something that you you save up and you invest in and you're going to take care of it. Um, you know, I know that's that's the case for me. I, I own one piece of property yeah. and that I got my hands full with that. But <laughs> people are, you know, are, are they, they see America as a, as a place with a stable uh, economy that they, they, they believe they can count on this. And they're sent, they're sending the money over for these things. So yeah, there there are there are definitely some who are putting big money in, um, but they they are believing the the pitch that they're hearing. You know, there's a guarantee of, of of rental income, and of course, what the lawsuits show is that you know uh, ABC in so many cases is leaving people hanging. Um, you know, they're getting sued left and right, but even those judgments they aren't paying. Um, and it remains to be seen, like what's going to happen next. Um, I, I, I reported that a few weeks after my story came out. ABC filed for bankruptcy, um, and there's all these people who have claims against them, and they're wondering, you know, how to get their money back, and 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 ultimately, this is bad for the neighborhoods because what happens to these properties? Sure. Um, they're buying in a lot of cases from. I, th- I think I mentioned earlier that there's these LLCs just trading them around, but one one trend I'm seeing is that a lot of people, you know, homeowners, people who own the homes who live in them, are are are, are these sellers. Um, they're getting calls. Uh, one one person I talked to said. His phone rings all day with people offering to buy his house. And I think if you ever drive around the city and see signs that say we buy houses, you know, there's a lot. There's a, sure. a, yeah. For some reason, there's a major market for this. And uh, the bankruptcy protection that uh, ABC Capital has filed under, you wrote about this almost a month ago, um, it's Chapter 7. It's not Chapter 11. Chapter 11 uh, sort of, you know, holds out the possibility that they can reorganize, get their act together, and come back. Chapter 7, as I understand the the financial uh, statutes, means they're going to dissolve the company. So does that mean that anybody who has, in fact, invested with ABC Capital is just out of luck when it comes to recovering their assets? I mean, so far, that's definitely the case. I mean, again, um, people who even won judgments against ABC went back to court saying they're not paying the judgment. It's kind of amazing that somebody can get away with this. Um, and the bankruptcy itself is all screwy. Uh, not, not, not to get too much into the weeds, but you know, they listed no liabilities, no assets, no creditors. That's just patently not true. And some people are raising questions about whether this bankruptcy is really like a smokescreen to try to get people off their back. Um, it, they filed the bankruptcy. Is that the, so the, the company name is ABC Capital Investments, plural, and they filed it as ABC Capital Investment, singular, and then listed no liabilities and creditors. And so it seems like this is this may be some attempt to just throw people off. Uh, but in, yeah, again, there's many, many cases that need to be resolved. And ultimately, the city's got to figure out, you know, what's going to come of these, these properties. I mean, um, you know, the city can't buy them up they don't want to take them over. Um, they, they become responsible for them. And I guess there's a question of whether they can offer incentives and and, and things like that to get these homes into the hands of, of people who want them, people who are able to fix them up and, um, you know, you, you know, can can turn the tide of these neighborhoods that are really falling apart. But ultimately, that that liability for these properties lies with the city. It, it all comes back to the city of Baltimore. Uh, that's, that's just sort of the 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 institution of last resort. Yeah, I mean that was a question that that I had for our, our housing reporters. I said, well, why doesn't the city take over more of these uh, homes?" And and the, and the answer that I got was basically that you know if if they take them over, they become responsible for them, and that these homes are 
they are, you know, dangerous and there's many liabilities. So the city owns a fraction of the vacant housing stock. And it's explained to me that that's the reason why. Yeah. Um, let's go to Lisa. She's on the line in Baltimore City. Lisa, welcome to Midday with Justin Fenton from the Baltimore hello, Banner. Um, Tom, hello, Justin. Thank you for doing this, Justin. This is amazing. Tom, and I just bought a new house in Baltimore City, new to me. But in order to do that, I have to traipse around particularly 21218, and uh, some of the flipping that's been done, the quality of work is appalling in that, for example, one house I went to, they were, uh, they were looking for 99000 for it, but the house is attached to a vacant. Now, eventually that vacant will drag down the new house, for example. I went to another house where I knew that this house had been vacant for at least five or six years, and eventually I saw somebody had taken it on, on board and had, uh, you know, done the work. So I was happy to go in to see it. It was awful. I mean, cut up doors to meet falling floors. The porch wasn't even finished. I can guarantee you the porch was not finished. And yet the house was on the market for 284 And eventually somebody paid 265 for this house. Now, I guarantee you that house is not going to be inhabited by the people who bought it. Yeah. I and think where we need to go with this is that the city needs to be proactive about saying to new buyers like me, you can get, say, for example, half your taxes off if you stay in the house for five years. Don't rent it. Renting should be your last resort. And the first resort, just because we need people in the city doesn't mean that we need to rent it out. Um, and because what's now happening is, and I can guarantee you, some of those houses are being rented for two and a half, three thousand a month. Yeah, the rental market's very hot all of a sudden. Um, and Justin Fenton, well, thank you for sharing your uh, uh, story, Lisa. It's complicated. I mean, Justin, uh, we are losing in the city uh, population uh, all the time. We are now under 600,000 in the city. Uh, it, it doesn't seem that there's a housing shortage. I mean, it seems like, if anything, there should be a real housing surplus because uh, so many people are moving out. So uh, there's a lot of options for where to live and, and where to buy and what to do, If especially if you're um, interested and, and skilled enough to to renovate a house, either yourself uh, with sweat equity, or you know uh, the game, you know with contractors to who can who can do the work. Um, h- how does that how does that reconcile the fact that we have so many so fewer people living in the city than we did just a few years ago? Yet we have this sort of hot housing market in this particular niche of these vacant and distressed properties. Yeah, I mean that. that- brings to mind two things that I came across in the reporting. You know, I wonder to what extent, you know, these uh, bot, these investors are either, you know, te- um, uh, directly or indirectly conspiring to, you know, raise the, the, the rent market um, because they're making promises of, of guarantees. Um, and it seems as though, you know, that, that it seems a little unsustainable. Um, the other thing that came to mind from the call with, with the caller just said was, you know, there was a second company that I came across and also wrote about called Property Invest. Maryland. Uh, they're based out of Miami, but it's a, a, a Turkish national and a, and a woman from Venezuela. And they, they're marketing homes to, to p- the buyers in Turkey and Venezuela. And one of the things I saw in their f- flips uh, was that they tremendously marked up the price uh, when, when they flipped them. They would acquire homes routinely for about $50,000, but then sell them the same day 
to Turkish investors for about $120,000, $110,000. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Every single transaction, regardless of the, the home, regardless of where it was, the condition, they're buying them for one price and selling them for the, for that price. And I just wonder to what extent that is art, that that is changing the market factors, you know, inflating pr- property values in a bad way. Um, it's just it's just so um, it's so unregulated and it's so um, it's it's bizarre. <laughs> it's yeah. it's a bizarre thing to watch. And there's people who want to buy uh, who are sitting here saying the city makes it too hard for me. There's too many you know red tape. Uh, tenants are hard to deal with, and and they're 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 struggling and frustrated. And meanwhile, on the other hand, you got this other thing going on, which is just completely you know the wild wild west. So yeah, um, you know I don't know how it's going to get worked out. Well, this is this is really important reporting, and you know that. Uh, uh, Firm that you mentioned, the other the other firm you've been writing about, Property One, uh, they have you know a, a f- swanky office in uh, the Four Seasons Hotel in Istanbul. I mean, they try to make it seem like a very high end, uh, upscale uh, operation. Yet they're buying these houses uh, in some of uh, our most you know neglected and and uh, distressed neighborhoods in Baltimore. So really important work, Justin. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll keep in touch about this. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Justin Fenton is an investigative reporter for our news partner, the Baltimore Banner. And coming up, WYPR's John Lee talks about the historic community of Turner's Station in Baltimore County and the challenges that they're facing with flooding. It's part of his environmental coverage called Climate Change in Your Backyard. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. You're listening to your NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, a conversation about customer service. As the number of shopping days before Christmas dwindles, how are brick-and-mortar and online companies treating their customers? Polls show that customers aren't being treated very well. We'll talk about it with a customer experience management expert, and we'll get tips from the Better Business Bureau on how to avoid holiday scams. And there are plenty of those, so that's coming up tomorrow here on Midday. If you've just joined us today, it's a reporter's notebook. And now we're going to check in with WIPR's John Lee, who covers Baltimore County. He's begun a new series about the environment called Climate Change in Your Backyard. John joins me to talk about the reporting he's done so far in this new series. Good to see you, John. Thanks for having me back, Tom. So what's the uh, the, the impetus behind this series, Climate Change in Your Backyard? Well, I was giving the whole issue some thought and it's such a big global issue and i was trying to figure out is there a way to wrap my my arms around it to to localize it to kind of get into what's being done you know in our backyard about it and and there's this i think there's sometimes this sense of that it's so big that it's what can we do but there are things that are being done and so i thought it would be interesting to kind of twofold 
uh, find out what's being done on a local level, and I'm starting in Baltimore County, which is where I report from uh, generally, uh, what's being done to, um, to, to do something about climate change, but also you have to talk about the effects of climate change, and that is going to be an ongoing and growing expense for local governments as the years go on. So that's going on too. It's interesting because it's kind of one of the sub-arguments uh, in the issue of climate change because there are those who say, look, local municipalities, you know, cities, counties, that's not where the action is on climate change. Climate change has to be a federal and actually international uh, uh, approach. It has to be it has to be done globally because it doesn't matter if uh, Maryland, you know, uh, gets its P's and Q's together and uh, is doing things that are, are uh, effective and, uh, you know, cutting down on the effects of climate change if Pennsylvania and Virginia and uh, New Jersey aren't doing that. Um, and it certainly doesn't matter if the United States is doing it if China and India aren't doing it. So um, what what have you, I know this is early in the series, mm-hmm. but um, when it comes to the local impact on climate change, um, it, I think you make the case in these first couple of stories that uh, there is a local impact. You can have a local impact uh, on the effects of climate change. Yeah, no, there's there's no question about it. Uh, one of my stories was about the uh, historically black neighborhood on the eastern side of Baltimore County, Turner Station, uh, right next to the water, basically a peninsula. And they've had flooding forever. I mean, you, you live next to the water, it's going to flood from time to time. But what they'll tell you when you go down and talk to them is that it has gotten worse uh, as the years have gone on, uh, the, the flooding happens more often. Uh, it's deeper than, than it has been in the past. And so they are struggling. They are convinced uh, with the effects of climate change. And what's going on there is, is frankly, not unique with uh, other locality, uh, other neighborhoods throughout Baltimore County and the city and the state and across the country where you have aging infrastructure. You have these old pipes that were put in 50, 60, even more years ago. And they were pipes that were put in to handle water from a different era. You know, when, when we weren't having these kind of torrential bursts of, of rain as often as we're having them now, and we're not having uh, sea level rise, which is causing you know, creeks and streams to go up too. So that's the that's the dilemma, which is that's, that is going to be the high cost of climate change for localities like the county. Uh, what do you do about them? I mean, it's, it ain't cheap to get in there and basically tear out the sewer, sewage and, 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 and stormwater pipes that are there and replace them. We're talking about some, some, a big-ticket item. John Lee covers Baltimore County for the WIPR News Team. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you have a question for John about his Climate Change in Your Backyard series, our number here, 410-662-8780. You can email us midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. So let's talk a little bit more about Turner Station, Mm -hmm. um, because there is a racial component to this as well. There has been neglect in Turner Station for a long time. There are about 3,000 residents left in the neighborhood. You report about 66% of the population is black. Um, This is in the Dundalk area. Um, But but they have been ignored uh, for a long, long time. So the, the problem just keeps uh, accelerating and multiplying uh, because years of neglect have made it worse and worse. No one denies that. Now, you talk to the the officials, county uh, uh, government. I talked to Congressman Influme about it. I talked to County Executive Oshevsky about it. 
everyone agrees there has been this neglect over the decades. The the people who live in Turner Station, they will point to other neighborhoods that are majority white nearby, and they make the, the claim that they're getting um, repairs done in their neighborhoods, and we're not. What's going on? What uh, County Executive Oshevsky and others will say now is that we know it. We know this has been an issue. We're dealing with it now. And one thing they will point to to try to make that point is there was an Army Corps of Engineers study of Turner Station that was done to try to figure out what needs to be done to deal with the flooding that's going on there. Now, that's just a starting point. They have a long way to go. Um, they're, 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 the infrastructure bill that, that uh, got through Congress last year, there's a lot of money in that bill for projects, for instance, like in a Turner Station where you have to get in there and do some major work with like drainage and that kind of thing. So the county is going to try to get in there, uh, apply for grants, to get that some of that money to make some changes at Turner Station. But, you know, the reality is there's localities all across the country that will be doing the same thing. So we have to see how that plays out. Yeah, and the way this works is that the county has to apply for grants right. to the federal government to, you know, see if their project passes muster and, uh, and is funded. And it's interesting, which is that, you know, Congressman Mfume, thanks to redistricting, uh, is now the representative for Turner Station, and Congressman Mfume grew up and he spent part of his childhood there. So when I when I talked to him about it, he he seemed to be he seemed to make the case that for him this is personal and he wants to do something about it. So I think for Turner Station that may bode well. We'll see. Talk about the kinds of things that need to be done. You talked to one person who said that one of the problems is as basic as the the pipes uh, where this water is you know funneled through are flat. So right. they, they don't, they don't, you know, they're not tipped. So right. they're not, you know, water will always uh, head downward. Um, but these pipes are flat. So the water just sits in the pipes. That's right. And at, and at the same time, uh, these pipes are going into Bear Creek, which is right there. And and the level of Bear Creek is rising. So water from Bear Creek is now getting into those same pipes. So what they'll say is like any given day, you can go in the middle of the summer when we haven't had rain for weeks and you can look down into a storm drain and you'll see water. And so if, you, if that's the situation and then you have a big rainfall on top of it, well, what's going to happen? You're going to get flooding um, all over the place down there on, on some of the major streets and neighborhoods. And uh, what are some of the residents there doing? I mean, yeah. ca- can you get health or uh, flood insurance uh, for a, a house that's, you know, so uh, proximate to water and has had this long history of of flooding issues. Yeah, I heard a mixed bag on that. Uh, some who said they could not get flood insurance. Others who said they could, but it was very pricey. Yeah, yeah. I bet it is. Yeah. Are there some remediation efforts? I mean, you did write about a few things that some of the residents are doing in terms of sealing things up and right. air conditioning units and whatnot. I mean, they're trying their hardest, aren't they, to, yeah. to mitigate against this? Right. You walk around there, and, there, and there's one in particular I remember seeing of an air conditioner is basically on, on a platform out of a second-story window, a, a cooling unit that was there, not not a, not, a, not a window unit, but an actual air conditioning unit, and others that it will be a few inches or so off the ground, uh, basement windows that were sealed, that sort of thing. So, yeah, they're, they're trying to take what steps they can. And the county is considering, the county council is considering establishing something called a resilience authority. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that has been tried in other jurisdictions. Uh, what would that entail? It's pretty new for, for Maryland. The General Assembly just a couple of years ago gave localities the authority to set up this resilience authority. Um, 
Anne Arundel and Annapolis have gone in on one. I believe Charles County has one as well. And so basically what the thinking behind it is this. When you have uh, these big projects uh, to uh, counteract the effects of climate change, they go beyond just like an annual locality budget. Now, Baltimore County, Baltimore City, all of them do these annual budgets. But when you're looking kind of big picture, long term, dealing with the effects of climate change, they feel like they need some sort of a funding mechanism that goes above and beyond that. And that will include... Yeah, because this isn't stuff that can be handled no. out of the general fund. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And 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 the, and the not being sure what's going to happen year to year. You know, something might get funded one year, and then for some reason, who knows why, it doesn't get funded the next year. So you want to have some sort of continuing continuance of, of these types of projects, but you also have to find money for them. And so some of it will be going for grant money, but I think also some of it is going to be being able to borrow, being able to go after loans, that kind of thing. Uh, so that just passed the county council. So I believe that has a ways to go before we'll start seeing anything from that. And the resilience authority, what authority would they have? What, what would they be able to do that would uh, you know, uh, ensure consistent uh, strategic funding in the years ahead? You know, I think the details of that still being worked out over time. Uh, my understanding is that one of the first things they're going to do is kind of take a good look at the county and see, well, what are the needs here? Uh, and then and then uh, they're going to put together an actual authority. There will be members of the authority who will be picked. And they'll. my understanding is they'll be able to look at doing things such as borrowing grants, that kind of thing, trying to find ways to raise money uh, for these for these big ticket projects. Um, they had to take a vote on hiring a consultant. Um, you wrote about mm-hmm. Throw Environmental LLC. Right. Um, it's pretty pricey. It's about $250,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what is the consultant going to do? This is the bill that passed the other That's day? That's the bill that passed. And basically, that was that is what the consultant is going to do. The consultant is going to kind of take a good look at the county, see what the issues are, um, and then they'll be making recommendations uh, to the county about how this authority will be set up. And in terms of, you know, Turner Station, for example, and its location in the county, mm-hmm. all the way down, you know, uh, in the southern eastern part of the county, um, how do the people on the council from Towson and Timonium and, and you know, uh, Lutherville feel about it? This is, uh, you know, this is where the rub always uh, is when it comes to these political decisions that have to be made by one jurisdiction uh, to favor another. I think uh, what will be interesting is when once this, the detail are, are, are laid out and they bring that to the council, I can certainly see there being some pushback when it comes to, or do we really want to give borrowing authority to this authority? We'll have to see how that plays. But when you bring up the council, another issue which gets into the politics of climate change is that just a few weeks before this, this last issue, the council considered joining a class action lawsuit uh, other localities, including the city, to go after um, polluters that have caused problems when it comes to climate change. That got a big no thank you from the Baltimore County Council because they saw it as a money grab. Uh, several members of the council, Republican members of the council, and even some dem- of the Democratic members made it clear they didn't like it. It was withdrawn. So the so Baltimore County is interesting. It's four, four Democrats, three Republicans on that council. So as this goes forward, and it really becomes more of a, much more of a money issue, and how are we raising money, and how are we going to spend it, 
you can see where there's going to be some some issues uh, lying ahead for them. And uh, County Executive Olszewski, um, if ever there were a guy with some political capital going into a second mm-hmm. term, it's him. He won by a huge margin mm-hmm. uh, in the election for his second term. He is term limited. He can't run again. Um, is he fully behind this? Is he going to spend some of that political capital? To hear him talk about it, I think the answer is yes. Uh, he says he's fully committed to uh, to this to this work. I know I asked him the question, which is that what can a locality in the state of Maryland, 800 and some thousand people, what can they do for this global crisis that we have? And his answer was, you know, well, if you go into it with that thinking that we can't do anything, then nothing gets done. And so he he feels like every little bit's going to help, and he feels the county needs to do its part. John Lee covers Baltimore County for WYPR. You can find his reporting in his new series, Climate Change in Your Backyard, on the WYPR website. Thanks, sir, and we will keep up with you on this. This is a great idea. I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up after a quick break, another one of my colleagues from the WYPR newsroom, Jekina Collier, will join me to talk about education in Baltimore and beyond. It's a reporter's notebook here on Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stick around. This is your public radio, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, it's a reporter's notebook here on Midday. My next guest is my WIPR colleague, Jekina Collier, who covers education. She joins me here in Studio A. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. I'm excited. And I'm excited, too, because you've been doing some terrific reporting. It's the first time we've had you on Midday. It won't be the last. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about a really nice story you did about kids in Baltimore City Public Schools being taught computer coding, programming. Um, This is a a lovely thing to hear about. Yeah, definitely. So uh, last week was Computer Computer Science Education Week. Um, It's a national week that was started by Code.org. And so students in Baltimore City uh, spent an hour each day last week in honor of the week coding. And um, one school uh, in particular, Claremont um, School, which is a special placement school for students with ranging um, learning disabilities or um, disabilities in general. And um, um, they were they spent their hour of coding um, doing different things such as using um, like color tiles to help write codes um, and direct a car to turn left right or different things like that and so um, they also received a grant to further their computer science programming at that school and that's so, yeah. great I mean because these are special ed kids who yes. need you know certain kinds of attention um, you think about computer programming as something that's very high level mm-hmm. you know math skills and all that business but they are uh, making it accessible to these uh, children, and, and that's got to be a thrill for them. Yes, of course, and even the principal, Dr. Edwards, mentioned how in general, being able to have uh, computer science classes at the school uh, increase accessibility in the classroom. There are many students at the school who are nonverbal, but they're still able to participate in coding activities with um, because they often use iPads or different tablets to communicate, so it's really a great way to um, not only teach a skill, but to include everyone in the classroom experience. Yeah, 
integrates the computers that are already there. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Terrific. Um, so these were two schools that got yes. uh, a grant, and these are the grants from, from private uh, enterprises outside of the, the school system? Uh, yes, the grant was from Code.org, and they um, 102 schools across the country received grants, but um, Marie G. Faring um, and Claremont School were the only schools in Maryland to receive that um, that award. Yeah, so, good yeah. for them. Um, you wrote a, a sort of good news, bad news story about <laughs> kids yes. in kindergarten mm-hmm. uh, and kindergarten readiness. Right. So they've, they've uh, you know, assessed how ready kids are to go to kindergarten. And, and you go to kindergarten when you're, what, about five years old? Is yeah, right? in Maryland, I believe you have to be five to mm-hmm. go to, yes. And so what does readiness entail? What does that mean to be ready for kindergarten? Yeah, so um, it's an interesting thing. I think a lot of people hear kindergarten readiness assessment and think that uh, kindergartners have to sit down and take a test, but that's not what this looks like. It's a um, like an observational um, assessment of, and the teacher observes them while working and playing, but readiness is really described. Um, they, they measure behavior, um, knowledge, and skills, and they are about, um, I believe, five areas where they um, really touch on that. So that's like literally literacy and language, math, um, social foundations, uh, physical well-being, and motor development are the areas that are really um, assessed in that test. So the, yeah. the kids need to know like their letters, you yes. know, the alphabet. They need to know their colors, be mm-hmm. able to say this is blue, this is red, this is green, yes. those kinds of things. And they also need to have the sort of social skills mm-hmm. of to be able to sit in a circle or to, you know, sit when everybody's sitting, stand when everybody's standing. Yeah. And and you don't you don't figure that out by giving them a paper and pencil exactly. test. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and um, an example could be for the literacy and language section, they could be asked to, um, they could read a book, the teacher will read a book to them, and if the, um, they will be observed if they can like retell the story and answer questions regarding the book and for math uh, being able to put cards in numerical order like number cards and counting those are like uh, kindergarten skills that uh, the state of Maryland and other states as well feel that kindergartners should have early on. And uh, they did this in all of the counties in yes. uh, Maryland. And this was done by the State Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Um, Worcester County had a 73% uh, readiness score. Um, but the scores here in the Baltimore metro area very different. Tell us, uh, this is the good news, bad news part. Yes. I mean, as, as weird as these scores sound, and we'll hear them in a second, um, it's, it's, it could be a lot better. Yeah. So overall in Maryland, I believe it, um, scores only increased by 2%. So last year, or the last time the, um, the assessment was, um, students were assessed, it was 40%, and this year it was 42%. And I believe in Baltimore City, it was 31%. So there is like uh, a a range of readiness across Maryland. And that's why with the blueprint for Maryland's future, they're really um, the in- increase of how pre-K w- um, will be available to more students will help kind of close that gap, that achievement gap between students at an earlier age versus waiting till they're in uh, middle or elementary school when that gap is already so um, so large. So the readiness actually did go up a bit since yes. the last time, but they didn't get, it was incremental. Mm-hmm. I mean, it did not go up very much. Um, the uh, fact that uh, a lot of the kids uh, who are not completely fluent in English uh, didn't have the option to take it in Spanish, for example. Yeah. They're, they're addressing that as well. What's the story with that? Yeah, so um, in fall 2024, they're going to um, implement a I guess they're calling it the KRA 3.0 because they've since 2014, since it's been implemented, there have been different versions. But this new again, um, KRA is yes, Kindergarten Readiness, readiness assessment. assessment. Yes, and so with that, um, they're 
they will have a Spanish version of the um, exam to offer to students who um, Spanish is their first language. And also another goal of that new um, that new test is to also reduce the implicit bias that is has been um, found in the testing since it's such an observ- um, observation-based test. So, yeah. Now, you mentioned the blueprint for uh, the future, the education future is also known as the Kerwin Commission recommendations. Yes. Um, I find uh, when I talk to uh, people running for public office here in Maryland every couple of years, we hear a lot about the importance of early childhood education. We hear a lot about how it's going to be funded. We hear a lot about how, you know, marijuana sales are going to fund it and (laughs) this, that, and the other thing is going to fund it. Uh, But then you stop hearing about it after the elections. At Mm -hmm. least that's my (laughs) uh, experience. So we're talking about three- and four-year-olds for early childhood education who can get ready for kindergarten, who can know their colors, who can know their alphabet, who can know uh, how to act in a classroom. Um, It's so incredibly important. And and the investment in those three and four-year-olds pays off a a gazillion times uh, exponentially. Um, Because by the time that kid who's three and four and getting that kind of training now, by the time she's 18, things are a very different story if they haven't gotten that training. If you start in kindergarten and you don't have it together, Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to catch up, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And um, even uh, um, State Superintendent uh, Muhammad Chowdhury said that we need to be paying attention to the scores now, of course, in kindergarten, but watch them over their academic career until third grade, where they'll take the the Maryland State um, statewide uh, standardized tests and even um, continue on because it doesn't just stop in kindergarten. You want them to, of course, be ready then, but you have to keep seeing where that progress goes. And in the past, he said it's shown that Somewhere along the line, um, while students may show that they're ready in kindergarten, it decreases by the time they get to third grade and take that first standardized test. Yeah, and then those standardized tests, uh, the scores were published, and they were very disheartening uh, just recently because, I mean, I guess they did okay in English, a Mm -hmm. little bit better, but the math scores were really, uh, really disappointing. Yes, and um, but I I do think uh, there is, they're hoping to see some improvement this coming year since uh, there are many initiatives to, I guess, combat learning loss that we saw from the pandemic and virtual learning with, whether it's two tutoring or other programmings like that. So I think this coming year, um, they're uh, crossing their fingers for better scores this year. Yeah, and then so, the yeah. Kerwin Commission did recommend a big investment in early childhood education. Yes. Um, there are some recommendations from the Kerwin Commission that some of the teachers and in particular administrators, vice principals, principals, aren't so happy about. This mm-hmm. was an interesting story. Tell us what's going on with, with that. Yes. Yeah, so um, a part of the uh, blueprint, there's one pillar called um, diverse teachers and leaders. And um, a part of that uh, said that it requires uh, assistant principals to teach, I believe, 20 percent of the school day. Well, And it encourages um, lead principals or um uh, yeah, lead principals to teach um, about 10% of their school day. And so some teachers were pushing back um, at the Accountability Implementation Board meeting, which is the um, the entity that is tasked with overseeing the blueprint and implementing its success. And um, people during public comment, and they provide a testimony of how they feel like there's already so much responsibilities on the plate of um, assistant principals or just principals that they feel like being... Ha- 
um, being required to teach in the classroom is only going to add into that, uh, add to that, um, to the stress and to the responsibilities that they already have. But unfortunately, the um, the accountability board said that that's a, would have to be a legislative change. So they weren't able to take that feedback and really do anything with it. Because Bill Kerwin, uh, you know, the, the, the namesake uh, of the Kerwin Commission was <laughs> on that call. Yes. Um, what did he have to say about it? I mean, obviously, he thinks it's a good idea for uh, for administrators uh, to have some contact with students and with other teachers during the day and not just be uh, in some administrative bubble. Yeah, I will actually say for um, for that part, he didn't respond to, but I will say the boards, um, the chair, he mentioned that um, in college you see uh, administrators teach uh, um, classes and the resp- the person who provided the testimony, she said that, um, but it's, it's a different setup. It's a different system, college versus K through 12 education. So that's really um, all that they said for that part. There wasn't much uh, comment from the board. There. Yeah, I know in my yeah. own you know, limited, weird, anecdotal experience when I was in college, the best class I took was an American history class taught by the provost of the college. Oh, it's wow. the only class that he taught. And he was terrific. Mm-hmm. And I thought, boy, this is too bad <laughs> that he's not teaching more because he's an excellent teacher. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it's a good idea. And he said at that time, and this was a thousand years ago, you know, he said uh, it's really important to have contact with students. Yeah. Um, so is it just a matter of workload? I mean, the, the administrators are saying, look, my plate is full being the principal or being the assistant principal. And I guess one would assume, and I don't know, one probably shouldn't assume, that a lot of people got in to the assistant principal business and the principal business because they didn't want to teach anymore. <laughs> I think that's a um, that's a correct assumption. Some people actually mention not so much not wanting to teach, but wanting to take that next step of being a, um, a leader in the school in school and in education. And so some people did testify and say that um, while they, they spent their whole careers teaching and, they, and this is a new step and to have to push them back into the classroom, um, many students. They, many teachers don't want to do that or many administrators don't want to see that. And so I would say it's not only workload, but I also um, I think it's just it's kind of changing their titles a little bit is what I grasp from um, their testimonies. And I think it's also might be a shock. A lot of um, administrators seem to not know that that was a part of the blueprint. So yeah, yeah. Um, even after um, my story aired, I had uh, people sharing it and saying, did you know this? Did you hear this? Like sharing it with their colleagues because uh, I think they were unaware. Well, that's why it's important to get this stuff out there. <laughs> so everybody, including the people that directly affects, know what's going on. So we just have a couple minutes left, but I want to, <coughs> excuse me, ask you about, um, uh, efforts to form a Baltimore student union. The kids yes. want to unionize. Yeah. Um, so they they started the organi- organization, or I guess it's a grassroots collective, in um, October this year. And so some students from Baltimore City, uh, they wanted more their goal is to have more diversity across student leadership and not so much racial diversity or ethnic diversity. They're looking for um, diversity of voices uh, from schools. So there are about 26 high schools in uh, Baltimore um, Baltimore City, and they feel that only Poly, um, Baltimore Polytechnic Institute and Baltimore City College are the only two schools that really have uh, students representing them on a larger scale. And so their goal was to really kind of increase the voices from all students. So students at schools like Murray, 
Minerva or Patterson can also have their voices heard. And so they kind of came together under um, originally trying to um, working to canvas for the school board uh, race that happened this fall. Um, and that's real, what kind of led to the organization. And Ashley Esposito, who you've written yes. about uh, and, and, and uh, broadcast about, uh, is one of the people uh, newly elected to the Baltimore City School Board. She's uh, a big proponent of this, isn't she? Yes, definitely. Um, her campaign really focused on student voice and passing the mic uh, to students and making sure that their voices are her, um, being heard, especially students with uh, disabilities. When I interviewed her, that was a large part of her campaign. And City and Polly, you know, the two sort of flagship schools mm-hmm. of this of the system. I mean, these are the schools that are uh, highly desirable. You know, many, many kids apply to get in there. Not all of them are accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very difficult to get in. Um, there really is this kind of bifurcated uh, hierarchy, isn't there? Yes. And so how does the union exactly address that bifurcation? Yeah, they're working on creating a chapter at each um, school in Baltimore City. And um, from what they told me, uh, having a chapter leader at each school, they're able to have, a, you know, communication across the system and talk with each other and figure out how they can come together, raise their concerns, and also um, really provide, allow everyone to voice their opinion so that it's not just coming from wh- who are traditionally the more wealthier or um, uh the students who have more opportunities at um, Poly and City. Shekinah Collier is part of WYPR's award-winning news team. She covers education. Thank you so much. It's great to have you on and uh, look forward to the next time. Great. This is fun. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow here on Midday, what does it take to make you a satisfied customer? Do you value the quality of the product that you're buying over the level of service you receive? I'll speak with an expert in customer satisfaction, plus the president of the Maryland Better Business Bureau. She'll tell us how to guard against holiday scams. So that's coming up tomorrow here on Midday. Coming up now, it's here and now, so stick around after news at the top of the hour. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Have a great day. This is 88.1 WYPR.